This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. I'm Aggie Dubow and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunaronga and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Hopefully you've had a good weekend as we start off and kick off the show with concerns that Australia's government is not serious about their climate change commitment to the Pacific. And in Australia, in spite of its um, uh, rhetoric, you know, has uh, been opening coal and gas mines. In more than 40 years, historical moment for first Bougainville woman to have a seat in Parliament. It's been an emotional thing because this is the first time in 48 years that Bougainville has now a woman, a mother at the floor of the Parliament. An Indigenous Wellbeing Conference highlights the importance of connections to country, culture, spirituality and ancestry. For more on these stories, simply stay tuned as we bring you the latest from the Pacific region. I'm Aggie Dubow and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, final preparations are underway in Cook Islands for the region's most important political gathering, the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting. Leaders from most of the 18 member states are expected to fly to Rarotonga for the get-together, which officially starts today. A major theme in recent years has been the importance of regionalism, the need to project a united voice to the rest of the world on the issues affecting Pacific people. But that unity is being tested with differing views on subjects like Japan's release of treated nuclear wastewater, China's role in regional security, and whether Australia is walking the walk on tackling climate change. The big day is the leaders' retreat at the end of the week, but there are numerous other meetings involving officials, NGOs, and non-member dialogue partners before that. But our reporter, Leather Mavono is there to cover it all and she joins us this morning. I say Bolivinaka and Kiorana. Kiorana and Bolivinaka to you, Aggie. <laughs> it's wonderful to be saying hello to you from Avarua at the Cook Islands uh, Church here as leaders who have arrived into the capital, Rarotonga, ahead of these coming weeks uh, Pacific Island Forum Leaders Meeting, Aggie. Yeah, look, thank you so much, Lida, for being there and letting us know what is happening. I mean, gosh, what is the atmosphere like and what do Cook Islanders think about hosting the event? Well, look, Aggie, it is beautiful here on Rarotonga, and a lot of people have come in from all over the Kukai Islands to come and help to stage this very important 52nd meeting of the leaders of the Pacific Islands Forum family of Uvale. It is a wonderful atmosphere. It is very Pacific, very different even from Suva and Fiji, uh, where I'm used to. But we're hearing that it is a nationwide preparation that has taken place here in the Cook Islands. And people have gotten together to ensure that we get not just the Pacific way when we get into Rarotonga, but almost especially the Cook Islands way, as we're hearing from Rohan Ellis, who leads the cultural team that makes sure you get a wonderful Cook Islands Maori welcome when you get on the tarmac here in Rarotonga. This is um, a milestone event because our Prime Minister, um, uh, the Honourable Mark Brown, he is the chair of the Pacific Islands Forum. And also our former Prime Minister, uh, you know, the Honourable Henry Puna, it was him a Prime Minister. So I think, um, you know, we have a massive opportunity to be able to um, to hold the event here in the Cook Islands. Also, we're, we showcase key uh, key topics and key uh, discussion points that uh, that not only 
uh, very important for the entire Pacific Islands, but also more so for the Cook Islands. And I'm sure that uh, you know the, uh, the agenda items that will be discussed um, at all the meetings, the uh, ensuing meetings, um, you know, will be beneficial not only for the Cooks but also for all the islands. Yeah, and that is Rahan Ellis, president of the Akirata Cultural Dance Troupe. Now, Lidhid, I know it's not all smiles and dancing, though. I understand delegates uh, have also been welcomed by a note of protest. Yes, um, Aggie, um, the Cook Islands, like everywhere else in the Pacific, is not immune to all of the influences from outside of our region. The war in Israel and Gaza, of course, having a bit of an impact here as we witness a lone protester making a very peaceful presence of her concern about what the people are going through in the Middle East and taking the opportunity to also speak about West Papua in her very quiet and peaceful way of letting the leaders know that there are people people suffering even here in our region and that their issues must also be looked at by the leaders that meet here. It's something that as a Pacific uh, you know, region, we need to be very mindful, well, one, of what's actually happening there and two, to recognise you know, the West Kafuan people and their rights and self-determination. And that is Maria Peach, a lone campaigner who held a peaceful demonstration in Rarotonga, of course, in support of the people of Palestine and West Papua. Uh, Lide, the official program doesn't actually start uh, till tomorrow. Are all the leaders, though, of all forum members attending the meeting? Aggie, right now I'm at the Avarua Church where the unofficial start of the program, and as you know, here in the Pacific, everything starts and ends with prayer. So we have six leaders already in country attending a church service today, but tonight we expect the biggest contingent of leaders coming on a charter Fiji Airways flight from Nandi, and the official program begins tomorrow with the sub-regional meetings of the Melanesian Spearhead Group, the Micronesian Presidential Summit and, of course, the leaders of Polynesia before we have the official cultural opening in the evening, Agnes. And uh, what, uh, what is expected to be the big issues this year? Or, and is there any big areas of contention? Well, look, as we talked about earlier, regionalism, the strengthening of our regional position and being able to gain power as a group, as a powerful block is the overarching important agenda of the leaders meeting here. Mark Brown, the Cook Islands Prime Minister, who took over chair of the Pacific Islands Forum has made it clear that while the Pacific Islands Forum has the 2050 strategy, they called it when they launched it last year, it is the implementation, it is the practical execution of that plan that is the main agenda of these meetings that take place this week here in Rarotonga and also in Aitutaki. However, um, senior officials at the Forum Secretariat has made it clear that regional security and defense continues to be an influence over the conversations that take place here. But as you mentioned at the beginning, Aggie, climate change, particularly Australia's um, hesitancy in accommodating uh, the the demands and the requests and the cries of the Pacific people will be very high on the agenda as it is every year, Agnes. What makes this year different, though, is that the Australia needs the leaders of the Pacific to endorse its request to hold the Conference of the Parties in a couple of years. That is probably a carrot that the leaders of the Pacific will dangle over Australia and Albanese when he gets into the country in a couple of days, Agnes. Yeah, Lida, I do want to ask, I'm wondering whether or not you've got any insight, of course, uh, around controversial former Nauru president, uh, Baron Wanga, you know, being a candidate to become the next Pacific Island Forum Secretary General. Any insight there? 
Well, what we're told is that Baron Wanga is already in country. He hasn't featured in any of the uh, unofficial and yet official events that have already taken place here on Rarotonga in the last couple of days. Uh, we understand that there is already a position in black and white that Baron Wanga takes over from Secretary General Henry Puna, uh, a former prime minister of the Cook Islands. However, we expect that it will get talked about over the next few days, Agnes. What about the return of the dialogue partners. If people aren't aware, who are they exactly? Agnes, there are 21 dialogue partners um, uh, in, in, in total, and these include countries from outside of the region who work very closely with the Pacific Islands Forum. That will, of course, include the United States of America, the European Union, uh, the Republic of China, to name a few. Uh, we understand from senior foreign secretary officials that we have had requests from Israel and the Ukraine to be part of our dialogue partners. We understand, however, that at these these meetings is part of the agenda as well to decide a criteria for how uh, organizations and countries outside of the Pacific can become a dialogue partner to the Pacific Islands Forum. Uh, we expect uh, a, a different, a difference rather, in the way these weeks' meetings will happen because unlike the previous few years, dialogue partners get to be in quite a lot of the meetings that take place this week, Agnes. Uh, finally, I do understand, look, Everybody wants a piece of the Pacific, uh, especially at this forum. Uh, we understand, though, that there's been conflict, you know, conflict points between dialogue partners, uh, particularly Taiwan and China. I mean, of course, what, what do you think the conversation is going to be around that? Well, look, Aggie, there are now a number of issues that continue to uh, be uh, a mode of contention between the members of the Pacific Islands Forum. There is allegiance to uh, the People's Republic of China as well as Taiwan. Uh, uh, and then we have, of course, uh, split um, uh, views and positions on the Rarotonga Treaty on uh, nuclear armament. And we uh, continue to be split, for example, on the United Nations resolution to vote for a ceasefire in the Israeli-Gaza war. And we understand that that also is going to be very high on the agenda. But as I mentioned at the very beginning, it's the strengthening of the Pacific Islands Forum Vuvale and the strengthening of the Forum Secretariat that the leaders will prioritize this week as a way of ensuring that in future negotiations and in future dealings with the rest of the world on the, the world's uh, uh, most pressing issues, that the Pacific at least come to a consensus on what their positions will be. Uh, more of that will come out to the forefront this week as Mark Brown, the Cook Islands Prime Minister, insists that it's at his hosting of the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting that more practical measures, more implementation is discussed, Agnes. Mm. Lee looking forward to those updates and all the best on reporting there. I'm sure you're going to have some nice minus and donuts. <laughs> No worries. Vinaka. That is Lide Movono there speaking from Rarotonga. Well, meanwhile, ahead of the meeting, the group Pacific Elders Voice have told the Australian government to commit to a fossil fuel phase-out and significantly increase its climate finance if it wants to co-host the 2026 UN Climate Conference. In a statement, the Elders expressed concern at what they say are vague announcements about adaptation and financial arrangements that may make for good public relations, but are no substitute for real action. Pacific Elders Voice spokesman Dr Mahindra Kumar says there's a huge disjoint between what is said and what is being done. 
look, I mean, you are part, you claim to be part of the family. You are obviously um, regard the Pacific as, as an area of, of interest. You know, you are supporting them. Uh, uh, but, but in terms of climate action at home, I think there is a huge um, uh, disjoint. There is a, a mismatch between the rhetoric and what they actually do. Uh, our statement basically underscores the need for Australia to do much more. You know, this is all evidenced by the by the opening of new coal mines and, and gas mines. As we all know, the, the biggest source of emissions is from coal and gas mines. And in Australia, in spite of its um, uh, rhetoric, you know, has uh, been opening coal and gas mines. Some of the figures from their own source, they have uh, something like 110 new gas and coal mines. So this is just one one of the many things which we feel Australia will do, and that is to begin to phase out coal and gas, which is the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the world. Australia is wanting to co-host the COP31 conference. So do you think this is a bit of a slap in the face to the Pacific, knowing that they are one of the biggest fossil fuel exporters? Well, I, I have a feeling that Australia is actually is very keen, anxious to get the Pacific countries on its side so that it can sell off its credentials to at the international level to say, look, hey, we are co-hosting uh, this COP with the Pacific. Pacific Elders' voice has been very consistent that they should not um, you know, rush and, and give Australia that support until they can get some real tangible actions from Australia. Now, the COP31, which they are wanting to host, is three years away. There is no reason, really, for the rush to get these endorsed at the next Pacific Island Forum and let Pacific countries themselves come to some sort of common view. If they don't commit to a fossil fuel phase-out, what then? What is the reality from that? The reality is that the greenhouse commissions will continue to, to rise. Um, we have seen um, how the planet is warming and we've begun to see all the impacts. The impacts on the small island countries are immense. Some of them are facing existential threat. And, and, and the way to address this, to uh, address the root cause, and the root cause is the greenhouse gas emissions. Ironically, Australia, you know, is well positioned to be a leader in renewable energy, renewable energy technology. We have lots of solar, lots of wind, and in fact, if some of the huge subsidies they give to the fossil fuels is diverted towards renewable energy expansion and, and development, I mean, that would be a win-win, both for Australia and for the world and for the Pacific. And, and that will be great for the economy. Look, the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting is just around the corner. And uh, the theme, our voices, our choices, our Pacific way, it's all about promoting, partner and prosper. Are the Pacific actually getting their way, though? You know, at one level, you know, there seems to be this sort of um, goodwill feeling that we are all part of the same um, journey and, and, and so on. But but I think, um, and, and, and I think one of the biggest driver of, of this sort of tension amongst the Pacific countries themselves uh, is, is the aid. And uh, as we all know, I mean, you know, Australia would, would sign up bilateral agreements with individual countries and because the countries are all anxious to 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 get assistance you know any sort of assistance to help them you know enhance the standard of living of the people they have no choice but just to 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 sort of give that support but i think um, the proof of the pudding is in eating it and we'll sort of see 
how Australia actually, as a member of the forum, as one of our biggest sort of uh, partners, uh, look to us for, for guidance and assistance, can can um, provide uh, tangible ways of, of addressing the number one security threat in the region. In fact, when we also talk about aid and assistance and so on, I mean, we we hear about the huge money, billions, 368 billions, whatever, Australia is investing in, in things like the AUKUS, the, the nuclear issues and that's also causing concern in the region. You know, we have a nuclear legacy. Um, you know, there are um, uh, all, all sorts of uh, other environmental consequences. And a lot of that money is actually going towards uh, enhancing the military and defence capabilities rather than to climate change. I note that there is, you know, recent shift to loans rather than grants. So this seems like the increasing levels of debts on Pacific nations. Your thoughts on this? Yes, absolutely. This business of green and and, and bonds and, and blue bonds. Now, bonds by very nature are, are um, you know, have to be paid back. They are not really grants. And what the developed countries, the developing countries, poor countries are saying is, look, we need more grants from countries like Australia and others who have actually caused the problem. You know, we don't want to be burdened with, with these debts. In fact, another way in which Australia is trying to meet its target uh, by not phasing out fossil fuels is through what we call carbon credits. So, you know, they would sort of basically are allowing their own industries to pollute, but by chief carbon offsets, sort of promoting forestries and, you know, replanting and so on in, in some of these countries. Now, those are good actions. I mean, they, they need to be done for biodiversity for conservation, but it's not really an answer to addressing the root cause of the problem, and that is to eliminate or reduce greenhouse gas emissions from, from the source. That's Dr. Mahinja Kuma, Technical and Secretarial Support for the Pacific Elders Voice. Pacific Beat. To other news now, and relatives of a former Bougainville police detective say she was locked up in deplorable conditions for eight months without access to clean clothes and adequate food. Sheena Cook was taken into police custody in February this year and only released on bail late last week. Her father, who lives in Australia, says he will fight tooth and nail for her justice, as Marion Farr reports. When David Cook hadn't heard from his daughter in a few months, he began to worry. It was September this year, coming up to his son's wedding in Australia, and David thought it was strange that his daughter Sheena hadn't gotten in touch. Sheena lives on Booker, an island in the autonomous region of Bougainville. I said, oh, well, maybe she's up in the mountains and forgotten everything uh, and lost track of time. And I said, well, that's unlike her because she's very diligent in those matters. Uh, So I... um, Yeah, I I contacted uh, friends in PNG. After a bit of digging, those friends got back to David with some alarming news. They discovered that she was being held in prison, in in the holding cell, effectively incarcerated uh, for uh, already seven months. Hearing this made him feel sick with worry. How would anybody think? How would any father feel? Hell, how would any parent feel? Up until a few years earlier, Sheena worked as a police officer in Booker. She rose through the ranks and eventually became head of the local criminal investigations branch, but she was dismissed early last year after being charged with a firearms offence. At that time, she had been dismissed from the police service for 
using a firearm, an unlicensed firearm, to shoot a cow for a village festival. She was fined 7,000 kina, which David paid, and Sheena was released. But it wasn't long before she was in the lockup again, this time charged with willful damage to public property and escaping police custody. As David tried to find out more information about Sheena's case, he became really concerned. She'd managed to smuggle out on, on a few pieces, torn pieces of paper. You know, she'd managed to smuggle out some pieces of paper which she'd very, very well-written uh, statements. Those torn scraps of paper, signed and dated the 6th of August, detail a series of allegations. Basically, she was taken from a civilian residence at night when she was no longer a police officer at gunpoint uh, in front of four children, less than 10 years of age, who by men who failed to identify themselves. Uh, Sheena alleges she was searched by male officers and taken into police custody without being cautioned or read her rights. She was held in the holding cell for the the first 15 days without any caution or charge. I don't exactly know when she was charged. She was prohibited from communicating with anyone, including her family or a lawyer. She was denied a change of clothes for weeks. She says the warrant to keep her in custody was also withheld. She was in confinement for over eight months without any access to outside, fresh air, exercise, decent diet. She's only on tin fish and rice twice a day, and she's been unable to pay the school fees of her children because uh, the police didn't allow her to be escorted to the bank or the savings and loans place for her to withdraw money. David, do you believe that Sheena was unlawfully arrested and detained? Absolutely. The ABC has contacted PNG Police to ask about Sheena's allegations. We haven't received an official response, but we're told police are aware of the complaints. Late last week, Sheena was released on bail. She's being represented by Port Moresby lawyer Desmond Aguilo. As we are speaking, I'm preparing a notice to the state and to the police commissioner to inform them that we will be uh, filing a human rights application against the state and against the police for what the police officers had done to Sheena, which is undoubtedly a breach of her human rights. Mr Aguilo says that human rights complaint is in relation to police allegedly failing to provide Sheena with a warrant for her remand and denying her access to a lawyer. The constitution provides that you have to immediately, after they have been um, charged, arrested and charged, they have to be informed of the offence for which they have been charged with, and they have to be immediately allowed to communicate with a lawyer or a family member. Sheena is waiting for a trial date to be set, and her lawyer says she's planning to fight the charges she's facing. Meanwhile, her father, David Cook, has been campaigning for Sheena's cause on social media. The agony comes in waves, and then you get yourself together. He's relieved she's no longer in custody. She's mentally and physically exhausted, but still uh, of strong will and mind. He's made an appeal to the highest ranks, asking the police commissioner for an inquiry. I would like, I would request uh, that David Manning step in immediately. And that's David Cook, father of Sheena Cook, ending that report by Marion Farm. Stay tuned as your news wrap is up next with producer Talia, right here on Pacific Beat. 
Elliott Smyrie. Pacific Break, the Pacific's biggest music competition, has now closed. Thanks to everyone who sent us their tracks. They were all incredible. To find out who'll be taking first prize and performing at Woe Adelaide in Australia to kickstart their international music career, tune into Nisha Daily this Thursday. Don't miss it. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. Uh, this is the time where we do our news wrap with producer Talia, uh, bringing us, of course, the latest around the region. So with that, I say good morning. Good morning. You had a good weekend? I did. <laughs> That's good. Uh, look, well, uh, hopefully you, obviously you had a good weekend, but it looks like strife is brewing again at the University of the South Pacific. Yeah, in a letter addressed to the Vice-Chancellor, Pal Alawalia, the Association of the University of the South Pacific staff have expressed their, quote, strong objections to the academic appointment of Dr. Mahendra Reddy to the Graduate School of Business. Now, this letter is signed by Elizabeth Fong and lists nine reasons that they take issue with. That includes, of course, his involvement with Fiji First when they were in government and the millions of dollars owed to the USP, as well as comments Dr. Reddy had made in and out of Parliament, which the association saw as undermining academic freedom, and also the fact that his appointment was not done by advertisement. And they, of course, that raises questions about transparency around his appointment. In the final remarks of the letter, Ms. Fong said, quote, staff are insulted at the appointment of such a person as the wounds of the Fiji First Government are still raw. Now, a little background with Dr. Reddy, because he has worked at the University of the South Pacific before, beginning in 1998. And in 2008, he became the head of the School of Economics. He also served as the Minister for Agriculture, Waterways and Environment from 2017 to 2022. And of course, resigned from Parliament in January this year. Uh, we'll keep our eyes and ears on that story as it develops. But uh, there's a drought declared in Tonga. Yeah, a drought has been declared for Tonga's main island, Tongatapu, as well as the nearby islands of Eua. It's being a, it's uh, the cause is El Nino, that climate pattern there, with Tonga's Metrological Services Deputy Director Leitia Fafita says um, the warnings and alerts have also been put out for other islands, saying they don't expect the drought to ease anytime soon. El Nino will bring warmer temperatures, less rainfall and more cyclones for the nation. Speaking to Radio New Zealand, Mr Fafita says the Tongan group can expect below average precipitation over the next few months. RNZ's Tongan correspondent Kalafi Mawala says it's a pressing issue for the Tongan government um, and given those dry conditions, the government is actually planning to convert seawater into drinking water in the outer islands in an effort to help conserve water. Um, farmers are also reporting how dry it's been over the past couple of months, which is especially worrying given that right now is currently pollination time for a lot of crops. Yeah, it's crazy. Obviously, not only just power issues, now water issues. I think it's a lot this similar for a lot of places in the Pacific, and obviously now that cyclone season has officially started, there's going to be a lot more weather reports, mm. I imagine. Well, a bit of sporting news, though. We're starting off with golf. Yeah, this is some good news. Faith Vui is proving she is a name to watch, becoming the first 
Samoan to win the New Zealand Women's Amateur Championship in golf. The 18-year-old won the 36-hole final at the Hamilton Golf Club over the weekend. It was a weeks-long competition but cultivated on the weekend um, and sealed the deal on the 33rd hole. So after that, the last three holes, she was just having fun. Um, Now, her goal is to become a professional and after ticking off that win, she said the dream is to be the first Samoan to play on the LPGA Tour. Her dad and coach Gary, who also caddied her through every um, hit that she took, um, was emotional and said that uh, on her win, he was proud to be her father as well as her coach and caddy, but mainly father, (laughs) I would imagine. Um, She will be at the Pacific Games with her brother Leo flying the flag for Samoa. And speaking of the Pacific Games, Kiribati's men's football team have withdrawn from the Games according to Sports Point magazine. The reason for the withdrawal wasn't stated, but the decision now means only 12 countries will compete in the soccer rounds. Gosh, so close and now they're gone. Okay, well we'll keep uh, in um, touch with that story too. Mm. Uh, but thank you very much Talia for no bringing worries. our news rep here on Pacific Beat. Hey, look, still to come on the show in more than 40 years, yes, that historical moment for first Bougainville woman to have a seat in Parliament and Indigenous Wellbeing Conference highlights the importance of connections to country, culture, spirituality and ancestry. I'm Maggie DeBole and this is Pacific Beat. Want all the latest Pacific news, sports and entertainment delivered in your inbox every Thursday? ABC Pacific have launched a free weekly newsletter with exclusive content from across the Pacific by your favourite ABC presenters. Be the first to know about upcoming events and competitions in your area, plus much more absolutely free and direct to you. It's easy to sign up. Just go to abc.net.au slash pacific and enter your email to join today. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. The first woman from Bougainville to ever be elected to Papua New Guinea's parliament says her two priorities are development and achieving independence from a PNG. Francesca Semoso won the North Bougainville seat in a by-election last month for the Pangu party of Prime Minister James Marape. She moves to the National Parliament after having previously served two terms as a woman's representative in the Bougainville House of Representatives. In Port Moresby, she becomes just the third female MP in the current parliament, but says is undaunted by the male-dominated arena. Our reporter, Belinda Cora, caught up with her at a celebration to mark her achievement. It's been a long time coming. And to be uh, the voice of North Bougainville and Bougainville for that matter, um, it's been an emotional thing um, because this is the first time in 48 years that Bougainville has now a woman, a mother at the floor of the parliament. And um, I'm really thankful that I'm, I'm with Pangu Party, you know. Um, a lot of people have said a lot of negative things about uh, Pangu Party, but for me, um, any party is capable of doing anything positive for, for Papua New Guinea or for Bougainville for that matter. Um, I'm really blessed that we've got two of our sisters sitting in the floor of parliament now and I coming in at this time adds value to the other two. So we've got three voices now and what we need to do, I mean having had experience in, in ABG parliament two terms, um, I believe and I feel that I come in with an experience that I need to share with uh, Casey Sawang and Rufina Peter and say, come on sisters, let's work together. Men will listen to us when we band together, when we speak about the same issue with a lot of emotions in it. Hey, people, men always say, oh, you're too emotional. So God made women to be emotional. 
It's the emotions that will change things. One issue that I know keeps being knocked back is getting our women into parliament. We need to find a workable way to get women elected into parliament. Um, in ABG, I'm, I've been a staunch supporter of temporary special measure, the reserve seats. And I've always seen the reserve seat in Bougainville as a launching pad for aspiring women politicians. Get voted onto that reserve seat. We've got three reserve seats in Bougainville, one for South, one for Central, and one for North. So we say, well, get elected onto that reserve seat. You get in there for five years that you're in Parliament, you know, find your way in. Learn a bit of politics. Learn how to strategize. Learn how to push an issue and let that issue be heard. You, when you get elected onto that reserve seat, then five years, you've learned something. You know what makes a man. You know what makes him angry. You know how, how do you win the support of a man in the full parliament. Get out of that and run for the open seat. We, we've got now five women now in Bougainville. And I am starting to see some change. I understand that you've been told in uh, during your congratulatory um, uh, welcome by the Pangu Party and, uh, of course, by the Pangu Party leader and Prime Minister of the country, um, um, Mr. James Marape, that the work is, <clears throat> this is where the work starts. What is your number one priority when you finally get into Parliament? I understand it's, it's an important task ahead of you, but putting that aside, uh, politics aside, especially in relation to the peace agreement and what Bougainville has gone through leading to a referendum, for Pernod Bougainville itself, what is your priority? Um, there are two things that are priority together. Priority is development in North Bougainville. Priority for me as well as a Bougainvillian, um, as an elected member of uh, of North Bougainville, of Bougainville, is to start pushing that issue about ratification. We must not shy away. We must not shy away from talking about the ratification. So two of my priorities is to actually make Bougainville independent ready. And then on the side of it is also raising the issue. Let Parliament start talking about the ratification of the 97.7. That is really important. We cannot shy away from talking about what people in Bougainville want to hear. You know, the onus is on us as the elected leaders of Bougainville, of Papua New Guinea. We can't afford to shy away from discussing this important issue. And I like the way the Prime Minister said it tonight. You know, we cannot shy away from the important agenda of the ratification the 97.7 ratification. We need to start talking about it. We need to start listening to each other. And that's the new MP for Bougainville, North uh, Francisca Simoso, as she was speaking to Belinda Cora. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Now, in its third year, the Indigenous Wellbeing Conference in Darwin gives attendees a chance to learn and listen to leaders in the Indigenous wellbeing spaces. The two-day conference celebrates the importance of connections to country, culture, spirituality and ancestry in order to help develop uh, deliver rather better outcomes for all First Nations Australian, Māori and Pacifica people. One of the keynote speakers, Andrew Fanvale, Director of an Integrity, uh, apologies, in, 
Integrated Community Advancement Firm Manawise. Based in Queensland, says that good work is being done amongst social and emotional well-being spaces, despite data showing otherwise. It's really important to think about how our social and emotional well-being is a holistic thing. We, we really thrive through what we call social determinants or a very broad view of what social and emotional well-being is. We absolutely need people from all walks of life to contribute. Um, and there's some really, really good work being done in and amongst the data sh- is showing you know, that we've got high suicide rates, there's a high rates of mental illness in Indigenous um, communities and things like that. Mm. And what specifically, because you were a keynote speaker, did you get to share on? And I just wanted to raise the gaze and raise our lenses to the fact that our voices, our solutions and our decisions are really, really required now. Now's the time for our knowledge systems to be embedded in mainstream because the results and the outcomes that we're seeing um, are not improving. In fact, they're often getting worse. So we need innovative knowledge, and it's usually marginalised knowledge, which is the knowledge that isn't mainstreamed in universities and wherever we learn. Andrew, you've lived here for quite a few years, so I'm wondering as a specific person or as as you've seen our Pacific people uh, adapt to this country, Australia, do you think we've improved in the well-being space or do we still have quite a bit of ways to go? I think it's a really different context, although it looks similar in many ways, especially given that we know coming from New Zealand originally that the pay levels are higher here. And if we think about well-being, you know, underpinning elements of well-being as economic I think we're we're often in a better position and we can see that anecdotally by the amount of people who are coming over from New Zealand, especially since the four-year visa and pathway to citizenship has opened up. So I think in some ways we've got elements for us to improve our well-being, but I think there's still a lot of room for improvement. Is the improvement in the sense of like, you know, what is it from our culture as Indigenous people, as specific people, Māori people, that we can use to possibly provide those innovative solutions for our community? Lately, I've I've been thinking a lot about this and um, and talking a lot about it. I included it in my keynote. I think there's no better time to be alive for a Pacific person if we really embrace who we are and all the values that underpin who we are. If we think about the courage that our ancestors had to navigate to far lands like Hawaii and Rapa Nui or without any real, you know, what we would call safety nets like life jackets and things like that, they were really courageous and they were really hopeful and they knew they were going to make it. You know, as a, as a person thinks in their heart, they are. I, th- I think it's how we frame ourselves. And if we frame ourselves from a deficit lens or a lens where, oh man, we're, when we focus on what we don't have, the consequences, it will create a feeling of lack. But when we realize how blessed we are and how amazing our culture is and how important it is to embed our culture and our identity into the mainstream, then we'll, we'll work hard to, to make that happen. We have these conversations over and over about mental health and what's lacking in it. But what do you feel then is the positives uh, in regards to tackling mental health within our uh, Pacific community? I think the positive is that we're relational. It's really important how our relationships are framed and how they're moulded. If we all start talking about the deficits, then our relationships are actually going to be quite burdensome. But if we flip it around and see the strengths of them, then we'll see those relationships as a blessing and an amplifier for our design and our purpose in life. We need to start to look at what we call the protective factors or those strength-based factors 
in light of the problems. Because if we go straight to the problems, then uh, it's going to be very pro- problematic and diagnostic. Often when you look at your strengths, all those problems kind of dissipate. They're, they're irrelevant. As a director of the work that you do with Manawise, what's at the core of that? There really has to be a motivation. Where did that come from for you? Yeah, I think it's uh, who I was born to be. My dad was worked in the steel mills. My mum was a stay-at-home mum mostly. And they just had really high expectations of their children. It, it sounds audacious, but at the core of what we do is people and community advancement. We have five values. And the first one is people, and it's advancing people and community is at the core of what we do. And that gets us out of bed, energised every morning. What individually can one do to sort of start making change? Because we know at the end of the day, change won't happen if you don't do it yourself. So I'm just wondering, what are your tips and tools around that? Yeah, firstly, I would say that at these conferences, there's a lot of uh, chat and there's a lot of talanoa around systemic disadvantage and and structural racism and things like that. And that's absolutely true. So we should be looking to change that kind of stuff. But my perspective, anyway, from my personal experience, is there's more room to make change within your own life than there is in terms of the structure and the system. And that's not to disregard or diminish what people are doing and trying to change the system. But there's way more space to make change in your own life. And so I would say that gives you a bigger return on investment. So what you can do practically is really it starts from who you believe you are and who you believe you're born to be. You know, migrants have a massive view of the world. They come thinking that they're going to make a better world for them and a better life for them, a better life for their children and their children's children. And people like me and you have extended that by leaving the shores of Aotearoa and landing here in Australia. We only came to give our children a better life. We got to remember that motivation. We we made that hard jump, and it was it's not that hard compared to what our parents went through, mm. but it is still challenging. But we did it for a purpose. So then, to look forward ten, twenty years down the track, what would you like to see? There's a lot more structural support for Pacific people. In ten years, what I want us to see, Manawise Group, our slogan, which is respect the past, conquer the future, and create history. And if we all do that, our communities will be better off for it. And so I just say we need to be revolutionary, and it starts in how we see ourselves. And that is Andrew Faanvale, Director of Manawise. Well, that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat, but let's take a look back at one of our top stories. Final preparations are underway in Cook Islands for the region's most important political gathering, the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting. The strengthening of the Pacific Islands Forum, Vuvale, and the strengthening of the Forum Secretariat that the leaders will prioritize this week as a way of ensuring that in future negotiations and in future dealings with the rest of the world on the, the world's most pressing issues, that the Pacific at least come to a consensus on what their positions will be. And that's ABC reporter Dan Daradonga, Lide Movono. For more on these stories, head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific. Remember, you can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time, but I will be back at the same time tomorrow. That's 6am PNG time. Stay tuned as always to ABC Radio Australia though, because news is next. And then after that, coming up will be uh, Jagger Maguire with Nisha Daily. Uh, until next time, I'm Aggie Dubol and you have been tuning into Pacific Beat.